Welcome back to the program. Who hasn't sat through endless brainstorming sessions trying to be creative? We're told to think outside the box, to almost magically conjure up new and different ways of doing things, often without structure. Yet when we look at the history of innovation, we find that there are clearly patterns and techniques that do make a difference, that product after product, innovation after innovation, shows clear methods as to how they were developed. Our guest, Drew Boyd, has broken these down into ways that are essential to enable us to think inside the box in order to get breakthrough results. Drew Boyd is Assistant Professor of Marketing and Innovation at the University of Cincinnati. He spent 17 years with Johnson & Johnson in marketing, mergers and acquisitions, and international development. He founded and directed Johnson & Johnson's acclaimed Marketing Mastery Program, and spent 10 years with United Airlines in sales, marketing, and strategic planning. It is my pleasure to welcome Drew Boyd here to the program today to talk about his book, Inside the Box, A Proven System of Creativity for Breakthrough Results. Drew Boyd, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much, Jeff. Great to have you here. How did we get to the point where we think that creativity, at least as it relates to business and innovation, really only comes from sitting around the room, throwing out ideas, putting them on one of those easels, and that somehow out of that something magical would be conjured up. You know, I, I guess the best way to answer that is is the research and, and um, developments that were created in the late 40s and early 50s by a very clever advertising man named Alex Osborne. He's the one that coined the term brainstorming. He was frustrated with people's inability to to generate ideas, and his idea was to bring groups of people into a room and have them, and this is a direct quote, use their brain to storm a problem. And of course, being the clever advertising guy that he was, he knew it needed a clever name, and the name stuck, and it has stuck for the last 60 years. There's just one problem. 50 years of laboratory research shows brainstorming doesn't work. And not only does it work, it actually prevents your better ideas and even your best ideas from, from emerging. Talk about how that happens. How does it prevent the better ideas from getting out? One of the big things Osborne believed was this this first rule of brainstorming. There's four rules, but we all know the first one, no bad ideas, or the way Osborne put it, defer judgment. And what he believed, and it seems to make sense, that if if you separate the generation of the idea from the judgment of the idea, that people will feel more free to offer these wild, exotic ideas. Guess what the research shows? What happens when a room full of people have been told to defer judgment? Now you don't know where your naysayers are. You don't know where the critics are for your idea. And it actually causes you to dial down the weirdness of your idea. You play it safe. And you end up offering two types of ideas. On the one extreme, you offer these wild ideas almost as a joke. You know they're not going to be taken seriously. They're they're offered to cause a laugh. Or you offer ideas at the other extreme that are very safe. You're more worried about what the group thinks of you, and you avoid this sweet spot in the middle. It actually suppresses people from from putting out those even better ideas, you know, the really quality ideas in the middle. Does this apply solely and specifically to ideas and innovation within groups, within corporations, within businesses? Is this something that has a broader creative application, or is it really applicable to this kind of business innovation? No, it's broadly applicable. It's a, it's, a, it's a method that essentially boosts your creativity. The way to think about it is this. If you look at the most creative people that you know, you, know, you look at somebody like Paul McCartney, 
right? One of the most successful artists in history he has two of the best-selling songs of all time. He used templates. He used patterns. And what's interesting about these creative people, they generally don't want you to know that they use patterns because it seems to take away from their creative genius when, in fact, these patterns boost their creative output. The question then is, what about everyday people like you and me? You know, can we use those patterns? Absolutely. Patterns boost your creativity, and we've demonstrated this with kids. We even taught this to children with cognitive disorder orders like Down syndrome. They can take a pattern and boost their creative output. So it has that broad appeal. As it, it, most of the experience has been in a business context, using it for creating new products, new services, and new processes. In fact, creativity, even within the realm of the creative arts, has often been talked about as developing unexpected results in expected circumstances. If the framework remains the same and the story is somehow different, that that really is is the ideal sweet spot. So you you look at an author like Agatha Christie. She has sold more books than anybody on the planet. They estimate something like 4 billion books. She wrote over 60 murder mystery novels, all using the same template, that very familiar pattern that she used over over and again. Did that pattern, that, that template cause her to be less creative? Just the opposite. She was highly creative by having structure around what she, what she does, what she did. You look at Jackson Pollock, the famous artist. He very much had a pattern. He had a template, a formula that made his, his creations that much more amazing. Artists are a good example because when you look at their work and, and see the totality of a body of work, for example, you see very clear-cut patterns at various periods of their career. No question. Salvador Dali, Moreau, these, these are exactly what we look for. What my co-author did, Jacob Goldenberg, Dr. Goldenberg for his Ph.D. work, looked at highly inventive products to, to almost to interrogate that product, to what... So what would they say if they could speak? And, and what these patterns uh, are, are, they're embedded into the products and services you see around you. Almost think of it like the DNA of a product. And the same is true of artwork. We can look at artwork and interrogate it, analyze it to see what that pattern is, and then consider whether that pattern is something you could use and reapply to the things that you want to innovate. Talk then about the five techniques that, that you outline and inside the box in terms of being able to create this template for looking at products and looking at innovation. Absolutely. So what, what Jacob realized is that for thousands of years, innovators have been using five simple patterns in their inventions, usually without realizing it. And now those are embedded, as I mentioned before, in a way that you can extract and reapply. And we've created a set of techniques, five techniques, that you would take and apply, let's say, to a product. And the way it works is this. You apply one of the techniques to a, an existing product or service. It changes it. It morphs it into a new configuration. That configuration, we consider it a solution that you then work backwards to a problem or benefit that it solves. And the traditional view of innovation is that you have to start with a well-formed problem and then brainstorm to a solution in our method, it's just the opposite. You start with a solution, and then you work back to the problem that it solves, which, by the way, it turns out, humans are actually better in, at that direction of innovation than the other way. So this is the counterintuitive piece for people. People just don't believe that you can learn innovation, that it can be systematic, but in fact it can. 
in many ways it goes to the heart in kind of a different way of what Steve Jobs used to talk about, that people don't really know what they want. They don't even know the problem they need solved until the work is done for them. So the favorite story I tell in this case is about the first time I bought an iPhone. I was one of those crazy people that stood in line outside the Apple store. And I brought my wife with me because I wanted her to have one too. And my wife's not a real technology lady, so to speak, but when she gets home, I, I noticed she was pushing all the buttons on the iPhone. She had this big smile on her face. But then all of a sudden, the this, this, this smile turned to a frown, a deep frown, and I thought, oh, no. I said, honey, what's wrong? And she's pushing the buttons, and she said, I can't find the help function. And I said to her, it doesn't have a help function. Now, most people would think my wife would have said, hey, this is crazy. Take it back. I don't want it. N- not at all. My wife looked at me and said, Finally, a product that understands my needs. Now, the, the, the interesting part about this true story is that imagine if Apple had called our house to do some market research, some voice of the customer market research, and got my wife on the phone. What would she have said? It needs to have a help function. So, so Steve Jobs is exactly right. People don't know what they want, but they know it when they see it. Talk about some of these five techniques, the subtraction, the division, the multiplication, and and what they teach us about some of these products that have benefited, have been developed as a result of these techniques. Absolutely. So the the techniques sound a little mathematically based, but they're not really. They're called subtraction, division, task unification, multiplication, and attribute dependency. Let me pick on the multiplication technique. The way this technique works is you take a component of a product – You make a copy of it, but then change the copy in some qualitative way. Procter & Gamble was one of the first to use the methods, and they applied it to their air freshener category. It's a very competitive category. And what we did is we had them make a copy of a component. They picked the vial of scent. Now you have the original vial that pulses out into the room to make the room smell better, but now you have a second vial that also pulses out. Why would you want that? Well, the P&G team saw the benefit immediately. What they did is they created a product that pulses out the first smell, but then stops just about the time your nose habituates. Your nose shuts it off. It gets used to it and doesn't smell it anymore. At that point, that's when the second pulse uh, scent pulses out into the room, and you smell this new scent. It's a great product. It's called the Noticeable. And when P&G launched this product, it doubled their market share within four months. Did they anticipate that? I mean, was this something they threw out there to say, all right, maybe this will work? Or did they have a real sense that that it would do that? So any new concept is going to take some validation. You're going to have to go out and see what consumers say about it. But this goes back to the story of, like, my wife. If they had gone to consumers and said, hey, what do you think we need to do to our air freshener? I'm pretty sure not one consumer could have said, gee, it'd be great if you just had two pulses so that when my nose shuts down, I'm going to be able to smell the second one. Consumers don't know that. And so what the method did for the P&G team is it systematically made them create this. It forced them. It walked them through a cognitive set of steps to envision this configuration. And then they connect it to a benefit to be able to show to a consumer and say, hey, what do you think of this? That's really an essential part of the product development process. Talk a little bit about subtraction, because it has creative implications, not only in terms of product innovation, but in in an artistic sense as well, the old idea that the piece of art or whatever is not finished until the last thing is taken away really goes to the heart of this idea of subtraction. 
It's a, that is a familiar idea in the world of art. In our case, with product development, what we found that that the subtracted, subtraction technique is very good at breaking a condition called fixedness. Fixedness is a psychological condition. We all have a fixed view of the world, and it's very difficult for us to imagine a component or a product doing anything other than what it was intended for. And so the way the subtraction technique works is you take a, a product, you list out its components, and then you imagine removing an essential component, not to save cost or not to make it cheaper or lighter or simpler, but just to imagine all the other components and what they could do for you if, in fact, this was the configuration. It's really a powerful technique, and probably the most famous story is when the, the chairman of Sony wanted to travel on long international trips and listen to his classical music, but the cassette recorders of the time were so large and bulky that it was hard to do on an airplane. He had his engineers take out the speakers and the recording function. Now, here's a cassette recorder recorder that you've taken out the recording function. It's very difficult for an engineering team to imagine taking out the most essential part of this device. But, of course, Chairman Moreto, he immediately saw the benefit of this thing that became the Walkman, completely transformed the way we consume music today and sold something like 200 million units during its lifetime. Of course, we see the opposite of that today sometimes in feature creep, too many things that get put into devices that turn people off. This is a serious problem. Companies get into this, as you call it, a feature creep or feature wars. You see this in televisions right now. Samsung is particularly guilty of this. They, they're adding so many features that it causes their competitors to have to add those features too, and it goes back and forth like a, like a competitive ping pong. All the time they're adding complexity and cost to their products, and eventually consumers stop and say, hey, folks, all I wanted to do is watch TV tonight. I don't want to have to take a, a six-hour course on how to learn how to use this thing. <laughs> so feature creep has serious implications for, for the marketing commercial effort of a firm. Talk about this idea of attribute dependency. Attribute dependency is a, is a really powerful tool. It's one of the five techniques. What it does, Jeff, is imagine creating a correlation between two attributes of the product or its environment. As one thing changes, another thing changes. So I want you to imagine a product like transition sunglasses. Right? As the brightness of the light changes, the lens of the glasses get darker. That's a classic attribute dependency. When you look around you, you'll see that a lot of products, in fact, the majority of products, according to Jacob's research, follow this particular pattern. And so the way it works is we take a product, we try to imagine its attributes, and then we systematically correlate. We create a correlation between those attributes and something else that's going on in the environment. Imagine, for example, in your car, there are a lot of examples of attribute dependency, windshield wipers that speed up the more rain that hits the windshield. Classic attribute dependency. Car manufacturers are very innovative in using these tools, and there's so, much, uh, so many examples of them that I don't think they get the credit they deserve sometimes. How does business begin to make the shift from the brainstorming, the kind of, of false creativity we were talking about at the outset, to get to this very different idea of, as you say, thinking inside the box. How will you see businesses able to make that shift after so many years of doing it the other way? Companies are frustrated. I, I went in to speak to a, the senior board of a pharmaceutical company. And the first thing, just as I'm about to start, the CEO looks and says to me, Drew, great to have you. Whatever you do, please don't give us the innovation equivalent of the five steps of sobriety because we've heard it all before. 
they know why they need to innovate. They just don't know how. So I think companies are really primed for this message. But it's still a big leap for them when I say to them, innovation is a skill. It's not a gift. It's something you can systematize. The best way for people to believe that is to experience it. And that's typically what I do. I have them experience what it feels like to generate an idea in a systematic way. For many people, that's the very first time they've done it. And that's when the light bulb goes on. And so what, when people experience it, they start to think, hmm, maybe we need to pilot this. Maybe we need to invest in this. Let's see what this can do for us. That's the best way to get companies hooked on it and then make this shift and see it as a skill. It is. It's a competency that can be trained and can be developed in people so they can do innovation on demand. Are developing these ideas kind of reverse engineering? In other words, are we looking at, at products and innovations, things like the Walkman or earbuds or even, as you talk about, in one of them, you know, the Kraft cheese slices? Are we taking all of those things which were developed in one way and trying to reverse engineer them to figure out what it is that, that got them to, to be successful in the first place? That's exactly the, what Jacob's research was all about. That's exactly what he did is sort of reverse, re- retrospectively reverse engineer it, see what the pattern is that would have led to it. And we're not saying that the inventor actually used our mm-hmm. techniques. We're saying that they invented the solution and without realizing it, use that pattern, put that pattern in there. Classic example is the Sears Tower. Architect Bruce Graham created what at the time was the tallest building in the world. And he did it again using the multiplication technique. It was fascinating. He took different heights of tubes, creating this structure of nine tubes of different heights. That again is multiplication. Did he use the technique? No, but in in creating this marvelous building, that pattern is embedded in that innovation. So what the method does is now allow you to use those patterns with intent, prospectively, moving forward. So you can innovate essentially anything anything around your world, whether it's a product, a service, a process, an organization, a strategy, business model, etc. How are you seeing these ideas evolve within business schools, for example? Business schools are starting to take up the challenge of innovation. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot written about this from the accreditation bodies, from uh, the many schools that, that try to break into the space, but it's a little bit of disorganized right now, fragmented. Many people see uh, themselves as owning innovation. The marketing people would tell you they own it. The entrepreneurship people would tell you they own it. The venture startup people say, no, 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 we own it. The engineers, everybody has a stake in innovation, and guess what? They're all right. They're all correct. And so business schools, what I recommend to them is they have to hunker down a little bit and understand what it is that they're really trying to produce in the market. You need graduates today who have the ability to come in and generate new ideas, but not just new product ideas. I think businesses want graduates from business schools that can generate ideas along the entire business continuum. Imagine being a graduate and having the ability to put on your resume, I know how to innovate on demand, innovate systematically. I think it makes these graduates highly competitive in the job market. Are you seeing any of these ideas taken up in, for example, the education or the nonprofit world where sometimes it's even harder to get them to make those changes? We've taught the method to groups like the Alzheimer's Association, and they are in a, in a serious situation where they're resource-constrained. And so it's the old adage, we haven't got the money, so we've got to think, right? And, and uh, so nonprofits are very keen on this, and it's a, it's a unique way for them to innovate, not just the way they deliver 
their services to their constituents, but also the way, the way they raise money. Nonprofits are essentially a uh, an idea of how you source funds from benefactors and then how you use those funds to, to fulfill your mission. And the method can be applied on both sides of that equation. Drew Boyd, the book is Inside the Box, a proven system of creativity for breakthrough results. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. Drew, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 